This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of your favorite ag podcast, Ranching Reboot. This is episode 146 and I am your host, Brian Alexander. You can find me on social media as Red Hill Rancher. Ranching Reboot is the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. Ranching Reboot is mostly fan-supported by all my amazing fans on Patreon.com and my subscribers on Spotify. I want to say a huge thank you all my patrons and subscribers. You guys are the best, and I'm going to try to deliver even more value for you in 2024. If you would like to join the ranks of podcast supporters, there are plans starting at just $5 a month on Spotify and Patreon. If you really want to show some love, you can subscribe at higher levels on Patreon. If monthly subscriptions aren't your thing, you can send one-time donations through whatever platform you want. Just look for my Linktree link on any of my social media bios or click the links in the show notes. Something else to check out if you're on Spotify is the weekly Q&A and the polls. I try to do a new one every week. Sometimes they're about the overall podcast. Sometimes they're about the specific episode. So please be sure to check those out and let me know what you think. Now, next week is Christmas. So as longtime podcast fans, there's no episode that week. So let me explain how that got started real quick, just so you all know. Two years ago, when I was still a little less experienced podcaster, shall we say, I came up short due to poor planning on my part the week of Christmas. So instead of trying to do a, you know, write a whole new show by myself or do a recap or do anything like that, I just kind of seized up and ended up not really having anything. So I just said, you know what? We'll take the week off. Um, it's Christmas, so we'll just take the week off. Now you know how that got started. And since Christmas is literally next week, time is up to buy gifts. I mean, you got a couple days. That's about it. And I hate Christmas shopping, but my friends at Wild Ass Soap Company have just, they've made it so easy this year. If you've got somebody in your life that's hard to buy for, soap. If you've got somebody in your life that has everything they could want, soap. If you've got somebody in your life that smells a bit, you don't know how to tell them, soap. But also, body booze and deodorant. Literally everyone I know uses soap at least once a day. All natural beef tallow and pork lard soap from Wild Ass Soap Company makes a great gift for anyone in your life, especially the ones that are hard to buy for. Check them out, wildasssoaps.com slash reboot, and check out all the different soaps and body care products for all the hard-to-buy-for folks in your life. While you're there, pick up some cold-ass muscle gel to soothe those tight and sore muscles from all the ice that we're sure to have to deal with in a couple short weeks. There's CBD gummies. You know, those are kind of a go-to when you're having trouble falling asleep, so check those out too. That's wildasssoaps.com slash reboot, and don't forget to use the coupon code reboot at checkout for an extra discount or just click the link in the description. There's two really great educational opportunities coming up next January, and I've made arrangements to be at both of them. 
That's Soil Health U and No-Till on the Plains. And no, they aren't really competition. It just takes many vehicles to get the message out. I haven't been to No-Till on the Plains for a few years, but I'm looking forward to going back to see the world-round line of speakers like Jay Freer. No-Till on the Plains takes place in Wichita, Kansas, January 22nd, 3rd, and 4th. Soil Health U is a two-day event that teaches farmers and ranchers how to sustainably maximize profit from their land. The event is produced by the High Plains Journal and takes place at the Tony's Pizza Event Center in Salina, Kansas, January 17th and 18th. I'll be there to heckle my friends Mark Lording and Caleb Chapman on the custom grazing panel and heckle my buddy Matt Kincaid on day two. My guest this week is somebody who's no stranger to fans of the podcast. Back for his sixth total appearance on the podcast is my good friend, Hobbs Magaray. If y'all remember about two weeks ago, I visited with my friends Josh and Gwen Hoy about their recent trip to Australia. Well, Hobbs took a little trip of his own down under and he had a different experience. So let's get into it. Hobbs, my brother, good to have you back. How are you? Um, awesome, man. How many times have we have we talked now? Aren't you getting aren't you getting tired of, of talking to me? No, I never get tired of talking to you. I I think this is probably podcast three or four with you. I don't know. I, I should have looked before. It's got to be more than that. It's got to be more than that. It's, we've had like three or four individually plus uh, one with uh, that that lovely philosopher from New York, I believe. Yep. My not cousin, Tori Alexander. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, that was definitely an interesting conversation. I, I remember that. Yeah, everything's going well, man. Just uh, finally getting my feet underneath me, getting back from from australia that was uh the jet lag was real coming back kids up until five in the morning it was it was an adventure that's for sure oh you took your family with you too didn't you mm-hmm. yeah we were fortunate for them to be able to come along and so they did the whole tourist park thing while i while i worked and so i mean i worked i was uh, i had a full itinerary the whole time i was there man but we're going to hear, I, I want to hear some about it. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I talked to my friends, Josh and Gwen Hoy, and they went to, a, they were in Australia too. I think they were there just a little bit before you were, um, but they kind of went on a working vacation out to a 4.4 million acre station out in the outback. Mm-hmm. So it, if you guys haven't heard that one, go back and listen to it. Cause that's pretty wild. And that uh, mate shed some different light on today's discussion and i didn't really plan to do like two australia centric episodes kind of this close together but that's just how it worked out so how um i guess let's start with why did you go it's well i i formed this really great relationship with a company over there called agriprove basically i cold called the ceo like three years ago i mean i've you know that from the beginning of this whole enterprise I was like, you know what? Let's treat this as a carbon enterprise and not as a beef enterprise and see how far that can take us. So I, so I got to looking around like three years ago on LinkedIn and see like, what are the carbon companies that are actually making a difference out there? And AgriProve uh, seemed to be making a name for themselves. And so I cold called Matthew Warnkin, the CEO, and he picked, picked up the phone. And so we just started a relationship. And then in the interim, this is when I was still in Oregon, in the interim, moved down to Texas and he just happened to be in Houston one day and came 
to the ranch and saw what was going on. And then he came another six months later and saw how uh, everything had changed and, and got to see some of the cattle bunched super tight. And, and um, so we've just sort of formed this relationship. Ultimately, uh, it's, it's that the Australians for a while, they thought the key to carbon sequestration was going to be multi-species planting. And the data ju- that was coming back just wasn't supporting that, that, that they were getting the results that they wanted to see. So they kind of went back to the drawing board. And during that period was when Warnkin was visiting me quite a lot. Uh, and uh, the picture that I was able to paint, you know, in, in terms of the whole ethos of Pleistocene megafauna, plus, you know, what we're doing on the ground, really started to click for him and he's like okay this you know it's uh it's not multi-species planting it's got to be grazing management that's got to be the fundamental driver for carbon sequestration because my my thesis that i'm operating from is that we live in a grazing ecology it's you know the grazing is not just something that happens on top of the ecology that we can do with it it's that it is the engine that makes the whole system move you know um Obviously, it's the an academic ecologist would argue that it's a lot more nu- nuanced than that. And yes, it is more nuanced than that. But it that you take away grazing and the whole thing shuts down. As far as I'm concerned, considering that the whole thing is run by grass, you take down take you take away grazing and the whole thing shuts down. So he he we we became kind of like soul brothers under this whole Pleistocene savanna ethos. And so basically what I did was I spent two weeks over there helping build first principles to uh, give some directionality to the next couple of years of their business. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in the office. I spent, uh, I, I gave four or five presentations on uh, basically the uh, paleo history of grazing. Uh, I went out to quite a lot of properties, saw some, some, uh, some cool folks out there, including a guy named Adam Rabjohns, who um, is another Jaime devotee out in uh, Goulburn, uh, New South Wales. So it was really cool to see how how they were doing out there with with nobody else around them had any grass, and they had they had beautiful tall stockpile everywhere. So it was really really nice to see that uh, it was it was working. There, I, you know, that I was in Sydney for a while for three or four days and I was in Albury, which is a regional community, which, by the way, is the closest uh, regional town to where they shot Man from Snowy River. So um, so I went to Koryong, New, uh, Victoria, actually, and uh, saw the Man from Snowy River monument. And, and so I satisfied my childhood dream that the that's the upper Murray River Valley, just one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And uh, so spent some time there. Then we went to Brisbane, uh, up in Queensland, and uh, saw, you know, quite a a lot of properties up there. We drove eight hours north up up to Gladstone, and uh, the Coliseum area, where you know I gave some more presentations. I I presented for in downtown Sydney. I pre- I presented for Corporate Carbon, which is. Um, just basically an, an investment company in in all of the various areas of carbon and and that was a cool relationship to to establish they own uh two point two million acres so not four but two point two those the, those spreads are huge up there and so um 
the, those those huge huge stations represent such a massive opportunity to for the carbon game because I'm I'm sure you know this, uh, but for your listeners out there, the main difference between the Australian carbon game and the American carbon game is that the Australian one is regulated by the government, and the American one is voluntary. Yeah. So the uh, you know they're taking it a lot more seriously uh, in in Australia and. It's it's just you know once things get actually regulated then you can start trading them in a, in a different way and you know with more um, as I said more seriousness so uh, it was it was just, it was just a great trip uh, I had a driver which was which was great you know it's it's uh it's definitely interesting you know being the crazy person over here in the states for for five years and then suddenly get to form this relationship where and go in a place where your knowledge is is valued and appreciated and people can do something with it like you know I've, I've been giving out this information for free at parties for years now and nobody really cares but you know you, you get you finally in the right place and then uh and it's valued so that's you know that that's definitely good for the soul to to be in a place where people can uh, appreciate what you're saying and can take something uh, that you say and do something with it. So that was that was that was really fantastic. You know, I mean, there's not a whole lot of difference really between um, the Australian grazing and the American grazing. Uh, from what I was able to see, it's just mostly set stocking unadapted animals. Uh, with you know, it's uh, you know, not not to not to you know, denigrate the Americans and the Australians too much, but it's just it's it's basically the same and. Um, I certainly realize um, during the trip that I need to put a trigger warning in all of my in, in my presentations because uh, you know when any time I got to the point about uh, in my uh, presentation where I talk about how in Pleistocene history the uh, ruminants took the good stuff and the hindgut fermenters came behind to clean up the rest of it and so the way that we replicate that is is basically taking as much of the forest forage as we can with a really high harvest efficiency. I would get these audible gasps from the the audience. Like you take all the grass It's like, I just walked into church and told them that there was no God, you know, um, it was just, uh, is definitely have to start putting a trigger warning on, uh, on my presentations. That's how you trigger a, a, a regenerative rancher, by the way, I, I've discovered. What's well, interesting. I mean, Australia as a continent didn't evolve with grazers it didn't like it it's a it's a landscape unlike anything else on earth because it didn't have grazers and ruminants on it before we brought cattle pigs and so and i actually have been researching this and i have a different perspective on that i, I just want to i just want to add because i encountered this the whole time i was there the uh, uh australia had giant wombats Okay. Giant wombats are hindgut fermenters, and it's the only marsupial that did seasonal migrations. Okay. So, all and also, a kangaroo is not a ruminant, but it is a front gut, a foregut fermenter. Okay. So it's similar to ruminant, and the giant short-faced kangaroo had a hoof. Okay. So the uh it. Anything, anything over like a hundred, a hundred kilograms or something, the tendons can't support, uh, just based on a pad. So they developed this hoof. So there were hooved animals that were foregut fermenters and, uh, hindgut fermenters that were on seasonal migrations. Obviously not cattle or oryx or bison or any of that. 
Um, but to me, the the whole conversation is simply like we we've we're fine. Maybe maybe that's why because they didn't have the grazers. Maybe that's why the soil is so questionable over there, over such a huge part of the landscape because they don't have they didn't have those animals cycling. Um, obviously, I've been told that I'm not allowed to say this when I'm in Australia because it's because uh, <laughs> you have to like. You, you know, you can't you can't say that we should change things or or that you know maybe uh, if if uh, ruminants or herd animals is a better technology for eco function, you know we have to leave it this the way that it was and um so that's I mean that's definitely an interesting conversation that I had over and over and over while I was there the whole you know Australia is different. I mean leaving it the way it was, I, we don't know how it was in Australia. Um, from what Josh and Gwen were telling me. Uh, the aboriginal stories were that it was a paradise it was an amazing place and then all of a sudden there were white men and flies yeah well when they got there it was uh it was a fire sensitive environment and then they started then they started burning and it's generally accepted that you know they the aboriginal community changed the over 40,000 years changed the environment from a fire sensitive environment to a a fire resistant environment because of their use of of burning so it was a much more um a much less more grassy much less shrubby um environment and they and they definitely altered the the landscape uh, over that over that period and um definitely one of the you know it was certainly a drier environment and, and so i really got into reading a lot of papers while i was there because people would raise these questions and and you know, in in a in a more drought prone environment, the water holes are fewer and far between. So it's so it's a lot more likely that the over overkill hypothesis is applicable to Australia because all the animals that the the humans got there fifty thousand years ago, and they just have to hang out at the water points, and then eventually the animals would get thirsty enough, they would have to go to the water points, and then they just knock them out. Um, so definitely, the humans uh, probably altered the ecosystem in Australia more thoroughly than, than much of the rest of the world. That's interesting. That's interesting. And I, I think I have heard some of that. I'm just, I, I guess the point that I was making is like, it's a landscape with soils and life completely different than anything else than any other place on earth. And I was thinking back to, how Josh and Gwen were describing some of the soil there and where they were. Cause they were, I think they were kind of like really in the outback. Like they were way out there. Like it, it sounded pretty intense just to get there. And maybe because they've had the lack of grazers, you know, because of how the continent developed and, you know, maybe the aboriginals killed off a lot of the, the ancient animals. They weren't there to build the topsoil, right? Through you know, through cycling the biological matter through their guts and and pooping and soil life. Is did anybody talk about soil microbes or or soil fungi down there? I mean, to some degree, they uh, one guy made reference to the root sugars, which I assume he was. Uh, I asked him, "Are you I mean you know mycorrhizal fun fungi?" Um, but yeah, it's uh, that I mean, to some degree, yeah. That I mean, they're they know they're they're advanced with regard to their their uh, you know, 
soil biology, they're, they're aware of it. The thing, the thing that really, to me, that I, I think that people are so, so concerned with like not changing things, you know, there's like Australia is special, it's different and it's the, the oldest continent. So we have the oldest, most leached out soils. So, so we have this very delicate ecosystem and, you know, where I'm, you know, a bit of a bull in the China shop where I'm always like, well, then let's get some herd effect on there. Let's get some carbon cycling. Let's get some maneuver. Let's get some urine. Let's get some animal impact. Let's get this thing going. It's like, oh, well, you might disturb the moss, you know, and, and some, and I'm just like, well, you know, life on earth is a, an ever mutating, ever evolving, um, enterprise. So, you know, let's, let's get on with it here, folks. Um, and it's not like, I mean, it's kind of a moot point anyway, because it's not like cattle are going away, you know, they're not going away, they're there. And so let's use them to put as much carbon in the soil as we can. Let's see if we can, you know, we want to go to Mars and terraform Mars. Let's start with Australia, you know, let's, let's terraform Australia first and, uh, you know, get that thing functioning. It's a, it's a huge, you know, opportunity to draw down atmospheric carbon, put it in the soil and create some uh, well-functioning ecology. You know, I, I was sitting here thinking about that, terraforming Australia. Most of Australia, like the interior, gets, what, four inches of rain on average a year, but some right. they might they might go five years without getting rain and then get 20 inches in one year. Like, right. that averages out to five inches a year. If we can terraform the outback with cows, that would be a good trial run to do it on Mars. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, we'd have to figure out the whole atmosphere part, but you know, it's it's doable. I mean, grazing grazing in domes, I think, is inevitable. In my opinion, I mean, we're not going to find we're not we're probably not going to create a better technology um, to to cycle um, the plants that are going to be necessary to get the soil biology going in those environments. I mean, it's a it's a totally feasible thing in my mind. Uh, you know, you within a hundred years, considering how far we've come in the last hundred years, you know, you're on Mars, you create a biodome, you have, you have an, an artificially intelligence, uh, managed grazing regime with, um, really highly genetically manipulated cattle. It's, which is probably going to happen. Um, maybe even, part biological, part mechanical <laughs> cattle, you know, but the, but the technology is, the technology is too good. I mean, it's like, ultimately we have this beautiful set of, of genetics that, uh, is, that makes up all life on earth. And ultimately it's like, it's, it's almost as if mother earth is just sort of begging us to, you know, spread her seed far and wide to, you know, it's like, it's like a sing earth is like a single cell organism or we're trying to split into two, you know? And so let's, let's, uh, take this life form to another, to another cell so we can, you know, start reproduction of, of planetary systems. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, uh, starting on environments that are difficult to graze in, in our, uh, on our current planet is exactly the way that we would get started. I mean, I mean, the around basically around the entire continent is arable land. So start there, work your way in, and then allow the the powers of 
climate and weather and atmosphere to, you know, allow that water to just continue slowly working its way towards the interior. Uh, I mean, and, and one of the things that, uh, that's very, very interesting is that, is that people don't think in, you know, it's, it's a new, it's, it's sort of probably a new human. That's not new. I mean, people have been building cathedrals for a long time that take hundreds of years. So, you know, if when, once we start thinking about the ecology and changing the ecology in 100, 200, 500 year periods, then there's no telling what all we can do. You know, it seems to me like we can, we, we could create, we could recreate Jurassic Park if we wanted to on, on, uh, on, on this planet, you know, with, with, uh, enough of, uh, a stable, uh, effort from, from, from humankind. That's way too slow. We know it's gotta, it's gotta be able to show results before the next election cycle. <laughs> Absolutely, because otherwise you're going to get voted out. Yeah, for sure. And you know, and and they uh, there's a data collection. I think is going to be really, really huge. Uh, and and it is right now. I mean, one of the things that um, what kind of data? Uh, like, well, for instance, uh, AgriProof just started working with series tags. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yep. The the satellite enabled tag. I, I met the CEO and their general manager when we were down there. And, uh, so they're going to be able to collect a lot of data about what the cows are doing. The question is, are we going to be able to develop proxy algorithms to tell us stuff? And are we going to be measuring the right thing? Cause right now the big thing that everybody's talking about is, well, you can put this tag on your cow and they can do, you know, you can measure the feed conversion efficiency of the cow, how much they're actually eating in a day. And we know, I mean, it, Feed convert. This is one of the things that Zietzman talks about a lot. Is like if you select for feed, for traditional feed conversion efficiency, you're actually selecting for poor performance on pasture because it's your you know it shows a higher efficiency score if you put on lean meat and water versus fat, and it's the fat ones that do well on pasture, the ones that are more likely to put on fatty meat than lean meat and water. So you end up with these late maturing. Um, lean meat and water, large bone, large frame animals that show these great feed efficiency scores because it's three to five times less energy per kilogram of added beef. And they're like, oh, this one's way more efficient. And it's like, yeah, but then you throw them out on pasture and they fall apart. So um, so what the question is like, okay, we have all these tags and we're going to be able to collect all this data. What are we doing with the data? Are we, are we, um, are we bringing it up properly? Uh, are we measuring it properly or applying it properly? And, you know, by and large, we know we're not. That was one of the discussions I had with the CEO. It was just like, be careful about uh, how you're measuring feed conversion efficiency because you're creating less, you know, you're you're creating less fertile animals by by selecting for feed conversion efficiency. If you, if you breed the cattle to feed them, then you're going to have to feed them to breed them, right? Yep. And that's... And that's just, that's one of the things that took me a while to really, truly understand. And, um, and once I got it inside my head, I began to realize that it's, uh, you know, you got to be really, really careful with, you can get all the data that you want, but how you break it down, you know, that's, that's really, really what matters. I was just writing it down. If you breed, if you breed them for feed, you have to feed them to breed. That's a pretty good quote. So the thing that I get really excited about when I start hearing about 
you know, series tags or 701X tags or grazing collars or whatever is a grazing heat map. Right. Like, I don't need a piece of software to tell me that a cow is a more efficient converter and feed in a feedlot. I don't care. Like, you know, that that's that's going back down the road of single trait selection and EPDs where the industry already is. And that's a train wreck. And we know that's a train wreck. Right. Show me a grazing heat map. Show me which animals are spending more time on what forage. Now, where the correlation would get really, really tricky is getting accurate, timely data on what the forage composition is before and after those grazing events. So you can tell exactly what the animals ate. How we could figure that out, I don't know. Somebody pretty smart will say, oh, we can do it with a satellite near infrared or whatever. Just having a grazing heat map, to me, is, is very, very valuable data. Because if you can co correlate your grazing heat map based on, you know, what kind of plants are there, when they want to eat it during the time of the year, that's all going to be, you know, a lot more valuable information going down the road. I'm not, I don't know what's going on with my camera. I keep flickering in and out. I've been, I've turned on lights. I don't know what's going on. Anyway. All good. Well, I think that I think the larger the degree to which you're selectively grazing, the more that information is going to be useful. You know, I, I think that even even grouped up super tight the way uh, the way that I graze, you're still going to see, you know, some variability within within one break on where, you know, where they're hanging out, uh, which which area is getting the most amount of steps. And what what's really interesting to me uh, is is once you take all of that data and then you you, then you basically validate it with on the ground carbon numbers, you know, and so you can say, all right, well, here we had a real increase in the amount of carbon sequestration. You go back and you look at the tag data. Well, what was happening here? You know, how, and then you also incorporate the satellite data. It's like, well, how much forage did they take? How long were they on there? What was the rest period beforehand? You put all of those pieces together and you, you know, shove it through machine learning and you start to be able to really figure out what's the most effective way to put that carbon in the soil. And, and because we know that, I mean, and it's not just putting carbon in the soil as a, as a good thing, although it is, it's kind of the root thing. You right. know, it, the more carbon in the soil, the more forage, the more forage, the more cattle, the more cattle, the more money. The, and, you know, it just becomes this uh, virtuous cycle uh, that, that run, runs in, onto each other. You know, so but I think there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff that comes out of it. But if we're just chasing carbon, there's a danger that that's going to lead us down the same kind of road that feed conversion efficiency has led us down in bovine genetics. I mean, we understand soil carbon sequestration. We understand it in in our context from our paradigm. And it's strange because there's people that seem to think, we can suck it out of the air and eject it in rocks 5,000 feet below the surface. Yes, you're technically taking atmospheric carbon dioxide and sequestering it deep in the ground. But is that carbon that would be, that needed to stay in the atmosphere? And also, those, those mechanical capture plants use a ridiculous amount of energy to do that. I mean, they come with a pretty steep cost. But those are the technologies that government chooses to subsidize and chooses to chase, at least our government chooses to chase. 
That's where they're directing all the tax subsidies. Like they have a tax subsidy of $145 a ton for direct air capture. Well, that's, there are definitely companies out there taking advantage of that. That's for sure. So let's, let's circle back and, and talk about the differences between the way carbon programs in Australia are working since they're government mandated and then the U S voluntary market, how you understand it. Right. Uh, one thing I did want to mention real quick, I think it's kind of an important side note is that I think the difference between chasing, uh, the, the reductive danger of single trait chasing in in genetics and carbon is that because is that everything is a, is a derivative of carbon to 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 a certain degree and if you and and the key really and this is this is this is basically a new thesis that I that I've been thinking about is is that you is that the only proper way to think of a herd of cattle is as a physics system. And the goal of thinking of it, the management goal is to reduce the amount of entropy. Like, like say, like for, an, for example, if you have an open cow a year, you have allowed a lot of forage to go through that cow with no collected organization. And the collected organization, of course, is a calf. And then you have, you have caught that energy, you have transformed it into a, a form that is going to be able to last and reduce entropy. And so it, the only way the successful uh, systems in physics are ones that the most long lasting ones are the ones that are able to reduce the amount of entropy and the amount of carbon that goes into the soil and stays in the soil is the foundation of a system that has resisted entropy the most effectively. And the more forage that comes the, the more photons that that become grass and then become actually leaf and then are stay for the longest period that's resisting entropy then you're building the soil carbon and then you have the largest herd possible that's the most fertile so you're not having wasted days of open cows that's resisting entropy and so in my mind the most effective way to think about how to have a and and if you have an uh, if you're able to control the energy so effectively that entropy is resisted that's going to produce more profit you know it's just it's it is physics every system is a dissipative physics system and a herd of cows is exactly the same the more we can res reduce the amount of entropy that is lost disorganized energy that that goes off into other parts of the system the more, uh, the more profitable that we're going to be. And, and, and while I think that there is a possibility of getting way too entranced in sequestering carbon, that if we look at the whole dissipative system um, effectively and, and really effectively capture that energy as it goes from one trophic level to another, then then um, I think that, that, you know, that's the way that we need to be thinking about, about the ecology in, in particular. And I'll tell you what actually got me thinking about this. Jaime talks about leaf to stem ratio. Okay. Johan talks about meat to bone ratio. Like to me, that's the same thing. And what it is, is effectively capturing and storing energy in in your level of, in your trophic level. Like if you have, 
If you have a higher leaf to stem, you're more effectively capturing leaf and turning that into something that they're capturing photons. And then you're more effectively turning that into something that captures more photons. So it's a great organizing feature and it captures energy very effectively for that trophic level. And then a meat to bone ratio in, in, a, in a cow, you've also captured the energy of the forage in the next trophic level into an energy store. You know, you don't store energy in bone, you store energy in meat and fat. And so to me, it's like, okay, I got one mentor talking about leaf to stem ratio. I got one mentor talking about uh, meat to bone ratio. Clearly there are some underlying principles that join those two things together. And the more and more I thought about it, the more I realized it's that those are both examples of preventing unnecessary entropy. And so if you think about the herd and the ecology as a system that is trying to uh, reduce the amount of entropy happening, then, then, you, uh, then you have a more effective uh, program. And so I started looking into that and looking at papers. And there's, there's a literature out there that talks about the, the entropy, ecological entropy. And it's, uh, it's really difficult to, to quantify, as you, as you might imagine. Um, but that's given me a new paradigm to kind of think about what's actually happening here um, with regard to uh, the whole. So, yeah, it's a, thanks for letting me interject on that. I guess we can go to the carbon programs now. No, no, that, that was great. And I'll have, to, I'll have to think about that for a while. I'll have to roll that one around and, and ruminate on it. Yeah, that's definitely a tell me what you think about this kind of thing. And uh, we can go over it on the next conversation. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I'm, everybody knows that I am not a fan of government mandated things, no matter what they are, or more regulation, more three letter, four letter agencies created by, by government. Not a fan of that. So let's talk about carbon programs. What, I mean, we don't have one here in the, in the United States. We've got the Title 45 sections in the Inflation Reduction Act that lay out some pretty, pretty generous tax subsidies. I don't think anybody's really sure how to get them yet. So how are they doing it down in Australia? Oh, I'm, well, I mean, I, I didn't really dig in too much into the, the whole regulatory structure, but I mean, ultimately it's you um, apply for these programs. They do a baseline that's... Uh, done with an accepted methodology, then you come back and uh, look at it several years later and you have an audit basically on um, how you've been running your operation. And uh, which, by the way, the if you have your animals tagged up, it makes that audit a lot easier because all that data is just easily uh, accessible to you. And then um, and then you get paid. Uh, it's... it's uh, I, you know, I have mixed feelings about it as well. I mean, I, I was, it's, Australia, going to Australia is a very interesting exercise in seeing how another culture interacts with government. You know, like you may remember that, like I learned when I was there that the police can pull you over and give you a drug or alcohol test for no reason whatsoever, period, anytime they want. Like you can have done absolutely nothing wrong, but they can just pull you over and, and to, and as an American, I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, that's, 
that is the most I mean, but they but they are a lot more into the collective there than 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 we are. I read in a book, uh, Shorter History of Australia, that partly is it's because all of the, uh, you know, go get it yourself. People got on the boat to the United States because you had to pay to get on that boat. The the free boat was the one to go to Australia where they they paid for your your. Uh, uh, your 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 passage over there. And or so hit you there because you were in prison. There, that was definitely the that was definitely the uh, the beginning, certainly. Uh, but then once they started realizing they needed to populate it, they, you know, you could go to the you know the, the docks in London and you could either pay to get on the boat to the U.S. or that you know you could, for free you could go to Australia. And so certainly there was a more community uh, communal aspect. And uh, and while I was there, I learned about something called tall poppy syndrome. Have you heard of this? No. It's the it's. Nobody sticks their head out too high because that's the poppy that gets picked, you know? So they're very much like, don't stand out from the crowd. Don't, you know, make uh, too big of a, a deal of yourself. You know, just, just try to blend in. And that's very much uh, representative of, of the culture over there. And I, I, noticed, I noticed that quite, quite a lot. And so, you know, being the, the bombastic Americans that we are, you know, we're, we're always trying to stand out and trying to uh, make a name for ourselves. And, and you kind of have to tone that back a little bit when you're over there. It's kind of an anathema to the uh, Australian sens- sensibility. And so I think that that probably, uh, you know, goes into the, the carbon game because they're like, well, this is for the whole community. You know, we want to make sure that we are finding a way to reward uh, farmers and ranchers who are uh, stewarding the land and taking care of it in in a way that is uh, quantifiable, justifiable. You know, in, in a sense, it's like you know, every farmer, every rancher out there will say, "Well, I'm a steward of the land," and then this this sort of government regulation, this carbon regulation, is kind of saying, "Okay, we'll prove it." You know. So uh, I think that 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 accountability is something that they're a lot more comfortable with over in Australia, where in the United States, they're like, how about you leave me the fuck alone, you know, (laughs) instead. And so um, for me, the the you know, the opportunity as a grazier who's focused very, very intently on carbon is is certainly over there. I'm not sure that I would want to live there because of the uh, the nanny state aspect. but you know, that's where the opportunity is, is right now. And I think that to some degree, we'll have to see how things change in the United States, but to some degree, the Australians know that if it's not happening in the United States, it's not happening. And so the, they want to, they, you know, they want to get into the programs over here. You know, uh, they're, they're, AgriProve is expanding into their, their, uh, engaging with the B carbon program over over here in the United States, and so they would, you know, they would like to get into the to the American uh, industry, and and being that you know they have got their their methods and their systems and their mechanisms really figured out because they have to um, follow basically government regulations over there. They they may have a competitive advantage in uh, deploying carbon programs over here as well. And, you know, ultimately, it just comes down to the idea that, for me, it's just the fundamental idea that farmers and ranchers should be paid to steward natural resources. I mean, that should be, I mean, if we really give a shit about our planet and our, the future of our home, 
And I'm not talking about climate. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm just having, I'm talking about having a functioning ecology. If we give a shit about that, then we should be rewarding the people who create better functioning ecologies for doing that. Seems like a good idea to me anyway. Okay. And, you know, admittedly, it sounds simple. Sounds simple. Yeah, it does not everything. Yeah. But then when you start zooming out to the 30,000 foot view or the, or the governmental systems view, governance of resources on a large scale is extremely problematic. And to that end, we probably shouldn't do it. We should probably return to local control of resources because the people that are, you know, kind of bought into that community and where those resources are located at are generally the best ones to determine how it might be used and cons- used and be able to be um, perpetuated. Uh, I don't have a word right now, but able to be there for future generations, right? Mm-hmm. When you have central planning and things are more centralized, you don't necessarily have that because people are chasing profit over overall. So the question of who decides what resources need to be conserved or what actually is a natural resource. You know, we've been talking about Australia and how it's such a manipulated landscape. We can talk about, you know, the Great Plains on how it's a manipulated landscape. Every landscape on earth to some degree is experiencing a lot of manipulation due to human influence, whether we're farming it, cutting down the Amazon, burning it, digging it up for lithium mines, whatever. We're affecting a lot of it just by what we do. Um, but the problem of, of who gets to decide what resources are saved and what are not, it, it's a pretty easy thing to do on our ranches, right? But we know that there's still compromises that have to be made. Sometimes you got to break, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking an egg. So, right. I mean, to, but to, to me, that, I mean, that's why the, the long-term look for carbon, I think, is, is, is important. And, and that's why they, you know, they want to monitor in five-year spans and not just every year and penalize you or reward you every year. Uh, and, and I think that to some degree, that's why I like the idea of the ecology as a derivative of carbon itself because um if you are um hang on one second i gotta blow my nose no worries much better well if if you are putting more carbon in the ground you're going to be more profitable i mean i agree and so i mean so that's so that's the ultimate benefit is that is that it drives profitability and that's why I, I think that it's important to have those two or at least two um, revenue streams from, from ranching with, with, with your beef and your natural resources. Because it, the increase in natural resources or are, are, are the, the increase in, say, soil carbon is going to increase the amount of, of beef or calves that you can sell. And so... In a sense, it's not the government deciding what you need to do. It's, it's your own self-interest deciding that maybe it's a good idea to do that. And if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. You can make less money. You know? And certainly, you get into 
well, what infrastructure do I have to put in to make this happen? Can I do it with the cash flow constraints that I have right now? Do I have to do it over a five-year period? Do I have to do it over a 10-year period? But I think we can all agree that over the long term, if we can find a way to put in the infrastructure that's going to allow us to grow more grass and have more cattle, then that's generally a profitable thing. It just so happens that carbon is sort of the fundamental first principle metric that that if I if you had to pick one uh, one metric that was um, say a proxy for overall ecosystem health on your operation, I think carbon would be a pretty good one if you looked if you zoomed out and looked at a long enough time horizon. You know if you're if you baseline a ranch and you do it every five years and twenty years later you have a one percent you know, increase in organic matter every five years and you go from 1% to 5%, you can, you can pretty much uh, determine that they're doing better than they were. They're making more money. They have way more grass. They have, in, inevitably, they have more cattle to keep that really, uh, that beautifully evolving landscape functioning and on an upward trajectory. So, uh, so, Certainly, I think that that's one of the protective mechanisms for me instead of the government saying you have to do this with your carbon. It's like, well, you don't have to tell me because I'm going to make more money if I do that. So um, and if I don't and if I have to, you know, as you said, if I have to make an omelet and break an egg this year and I have to sacrifice this pasture or I have to overgraze this pasture, then, well, there's always next year. And that's why we're going to measure in, in five year five year increments. But I, but ultimately, I really want to see ranchers and farmers get paid for putting carbon in the soil because more carbon in the soil is more life and the more health and more regulated uh, climate. It's more regulated ecology. It's uh, it's just a better better overall situation. Everybody, if if you if you uh, if you went and asked any farmer or ranchers like, hey, I can magically increase your soil organic carbon by 1% in the next two years. You don't have to do anything. How many of them would say, oh yeah, go for it? All of them, you know? And, and, they, would say, and they would say that because they know that they'll have a healthier landscape. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think once people understand what the benefits are of transitioning to a more regenerative grazing system or cropping system or whatever, you know, soil carbon, the microbes, moisture infiltration, but what's holding, what do you think is holding people back? Do you think it's just because we are a nation of tenant farmers and ranchers and there's just a lot of people on sharecroppers or cash rent and they can't afford to do anything else? Is it because there's no owner operators left? What, what, do you, what do you think? I think that's a very multivariate answer. I think all of the above, everything that you just said definitely plays into it. And I think that, you know, that this conversation has been had a million times. Like, why aren't people adopting more regenerative practices? Like, the momentum of heritage is very strong. People really love their horses. Um, they don't have the cash flow to be able to do it. Uh, they don't understand why it's important. They would have to alter the habits of their lives in order to do that. Uh, I, and I think I, it, it, to me, I think that's probably maybe fear of success also. You know, it's like, uh, you, uh, you, if you succeed, it brings a whole, you know, shit ton of problems. It's like suddenly, okay, well, let's we have enough money to put in this infrastructure. Well, oh my gosh, I have to double my herd size because I have all this extra grass because I'm utilizing it so much more efficiently. Like, what am I? I'm gonna go to the bank and 
and get another loan for twice as many cows now? Or like, am I going to, you know, am I going to custom graze? It adds this whole uh, level of, of, uh, of responsibility to what I'm doing. And I have to learn a new thing. I have to make all of these new connections. I have to, you know, I have to, I have to, I have to, but I, but it's so much easier to just continue doing the same thing you did year after year. Um, I think that the vast majority of people don't want to move outside of, of their comfort zone when it comes to their habits. Uh, I think that's probably uh, the, the biggest, the biggest motivator of human beings altogether. Is that is that we don't like to move out of our habits. We, you know, we we would all we could all easily say make a list of the things our habits that are not serving us, and then that we could, all of us could do that easily. And then, but the but the number of people who can make that list and then act on it is very very small. You know, I listen to you think. I was just thinking, people will sit in their comfort zone like it's a house burning down around them, just so they don't have to leave. I think that's well said. Yeah, I, I, I do. I, it's, 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 and all, yeah, I mean, su- success is on the other side of discomfort for sure. Uh, success is also on the other side of cringe. You know, people like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to go to the bar and tell my buddies that I was just moving cows with electric fence today. You know, I, I didn't get to rope, I didn't get to rope nothing. You know, um, I didn't get to spend all my time getting ready for this with this horse to go to the futurity you know, um, which is, you know, way more machismo. And, um, and so nobody wants to be that cringy dude who's just moving their cows with, with electric fence. And I think that's, I think that's a, an American West, uh, thing much more than an American East thing. Uh, people are, and, and I think it's the, the, the overall ranch ethos, you know, they, they don't have ranches in Australia, right? It's all, it's all farms. So either stations or farms, you know, and, and it's the, and it's the same thing. That that was a really interesting thing. It's like America with no Spanish influence and very little continental European influence is what Australia is. It's like it's basically just another version of Britain in a way, you know. So so you know, I, I didn't realize how much Spanish influence was in my life growing up in the Texas panhandle until I went to Australia and saw what it was, you know, just zero Spanish influence. These are like British 2.0, you know, and, uh, it's hard to find good tacos in Australia. Oh, dude, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of other good food though. I, I have to, I, have to get, you know, I did, I didn't go searching out the, uh, the, the Mexican food. That's for sure. Um, but you know, the, the American East is much more of that, that European British sensibility and i know i know spain is in europe but it's definitely its own kind of animal um and so you know farms you know when people would ask me about the definitions of farms versus ranches over in the united states i was like well if you're in the east you know you're you can be a farmer and have crops and cattle then you go to the west you're either a rancher or a farmer and never the you know the twain shall they meet and then that's your identity. You're either a rancher or you're a farmer. Maybe some farmers do a little cattle. Maybe some ranchers do a little bit of cropping, but it's not, it's not the same. It is not an integrated system. And uh, so, uh, you know, back to your original query, I think that it's ultimately our, our habits and our identities um, uh, are, are certainly what prevent us to, and i i have the i have the luxury of having a tra- traumatic enough childhood that i wasn't able to uh form a, a, a proper identity and so 
I've been able to just be a chameleon my whole life. And, you know, because I, cause I didn't, you know, I, I moved around so much and, and had such a, an unstable childhood that, that I didn't, you know, I never was like, this is who you are. You know, <laughs> I never got that. So I can just be whoever I want. So luckily I can be that guy who just, you know, moves around catalyst uh, with electric fence and doesn't have to have anything else attached to my identity. Black hoodie and brown pants. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It's a little bit of a, a little bit of a Dr. Alexander clinical psychologist action going on here. You got the beard for it. Yeah. Yeah. You're working on it. I mean, mine's a little lighter, get a little bit, get a little more salt than mine, but uh, that's what happens when you get old. So here's a wild thought. All right. Did the West really exist or is it a Mandela effect from media, TV, newspapers, and books? movies did it really exist did, did this idealized thing that we that a lot of us have in our heads of what the west was like with cowboys and indians and and, and stockmanship and rodeo was is that a mandela effect from tv and movies i think i think so i think it was i think the american west was huge pieces of land owned by corporate interests in chicago new york and edinburgh and um the rich, the rich guys played with land, and they allowed poor suckers who were uh, getting by on shit wages to take all of the romance, you know. And I, uh, I, I think that I think that obviously there were you know, all kinds of cowboys and stories and you know wild west things. I mean, I wasn't there, so I can't confirm it personally. Um, but the que- if you're asking, was it overhyped and over romanticized, and was it actually probably really shitty for a huge percentage of the people who lived out of the American West? Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, life didn't get good for anybody until like the 1950s. You know, uh, be- before then, it was pretty much shitty for everybody. And you know, if like imagine you know you never you didn't if you were out on the range in Nevada in 1915, you weren't brushing your teeth. You know, it's like it was it was not that it was not that fun of a life. You know, it was not it was not it was hard. I mean, I can't imagine getting a toothache out there. You know, you like you throw out your back. I'm 37. I'm starting to have like back problems already. And I live in a pretty cushy, you know, 21st century existence. Like I can't imagine these poor guys having problems with and nothing to salve their their pain except like whiskey, you know. It's like life was hard. Um, was it a Mandela? Did, bark. Did, what now? Go chew on some willow bark. Right, right, right. Some some uh, proto acetaminophen. Yeah, was, yeah. Could I? Yeah, that's. I'm sure they. I'm sure they had all kinds of of, of native uh, and uh, more naturopathic ways. But obviously, those are not going to be as effective as Tylenol. That's for sure. But um, but to to the heart of your question, which is. Did it actually exist, or was it completely made up? Because we live in a quantum universe that can change on on uh, just because of our decision to observe it. Like, I don't know, man. It's a good question. I'm not even sure that anything I'm not looking at exists outside of my observation. You know, you look up at an airplane, and it's like, are there people in that airplane? Are they like having their own experience right now at the same time? Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, we, we could kind of continue down this line and say that we're all living in our own individual simulations and I'm the main character in mine and you're just an NPC. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's totally reasonable. The problem, though, is that if we act like that, it causes real problems. 
if we start acting like all of the people that we encounter on a day to day aren't real people, they don't like that very much. (laughs) (laughs) So whether it's true or not, we all have to continue pretending that all of the other people we encounter are real. Um, it, it, as much as some of the people are like, there's no way that you are a real, a real person. But, you- but, but, but then, you know, this like, like this, uh, it's crazy, dude. The way that interacting with reality is crazy. I made, I'll tell you this. I made, I made a hypnosis script, um, uh, on chat GPT a year ago that said I was going to go to Australia and get paid really well to consult and um, I had this whole thing laid out just the way it felt to get off the airplane everything and boom a year later it happened like in the in that period in that year-long period I listened to this hypnosis script every day and in that year-long period I, this relationship with AgriProof grew and then this uh, this this necessity to go over there and start to do some business development with them grew and it's all it's like is that just because i started looking for those opportunities and developing them or did i actually shift the fabric of reality by listening to a hypnosis script that i made every day um and i mean i'm i'm convinced now that i can have whatever i want all i have to do is create uh, a script and then listen to it every day. I can have whatever I want. And then you can just, you know, the uh, the uh, the fabric of reality will just shift around and you can have whatever it is you want. Okay. Interesting. So manifesting luck is what I wrote down. Manifesting luck? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to define luck as the residue of preparation. It's like and making what- a net. And what that means in relation to what you just said, I really don't know. But I don't know, man. I I think I think it's I think you actually I think there it's almost like there are infinite number of universes, and you just step into the one where that thing that you want is happening. You know, it's uh, it's uh, like I I can't explain it. I think that you know Hinduism and Tibetan Buddhism have talked about it for a long time. I think quantum physics is getting there right now. Um, There's a book out there called The Dancing Wooly Masters. I read it probably over a decade ago. Talks about this, uh, the you know, so the uh, uh, the connections between uh, Eastern philosophy and mysticism and and uh, the current understandings of quantum mechanics. You know, it's it's like the, the, this. Clearly, is a video game that we're in right now. Like we like we're on a we're on a spinning rock, uh, uh, the hurtling through infinite nothingness, and you know we're in these primate bodies. And we have these little hands that we can like the whole thing is is a, 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 an opium dream. Like the whole thing is an opium dream. And you just get to kind of go into the back, you know, the the back code of the dream and say, OK, I want to experience this. I want to experience this. And then you just program yourself to then go experience it. And that seems to be how that how it happened how in the world do you think i started with 11 cows five years ago and i just got back from consulting in australia like that doesn't make any sense brian doesn't make any sense from the from the perspective of of the mechanical reality that we are all told about you know it's like you can you can create anything that you want in this crazy dream of a reality and all you have to do is believe it that it's already here and it's already happening and then 
voila, it just happens. Believe it's here before it arrives and have totally. that it'll come. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hold that consistent vision of what you want the future to be, no matter yeah. what it is, whether it's doing your consulting trip to Australia, having a ranch without cedar trees on it. I mean, it's, I agree. Like, it, I know it sounds woo-woo and there's probably a bunch of people out there that are rolling their eyes. Maybe a lot of clicks turn it off or going to the next podcast. Whatever, that's fine. I, there's something there. And I'm not saying that, you know, by reciting a mantra that, you know, I'm going to be the world's richest person, that that's going to happen in a year. Got to be maybe a little bit realistic, but you can, you can create the reality that you desire by focusing on it consciously and then subconsciously you'll be taking actions that further your goal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it's not only will you be interacting with your reality in a way that is going to further those goals, but also the things that come into your reality, like, like what is deciding those random things that come into your reality, that person that happens to be coming by, or, you know, you, we, we encounter, a. Uh, uh, you know, billions of chance things. And so it's almost like the universe just creates this, this special concoction of putting the right thing into your space at the right times that, that you can then engage with to be able to, to get that thing. And the, the number one step to getting that is to believe it. You know, it's like if you believe that it can happen, it happens. And if you don't believe, if you believe it can't happen, you're also right. And then, I mean, that's, that's a beautiful, like self-fulfilling aspect of, of this whole uh this whole wild trip we're on it's like if you believe that that's crazy and it, you know that would never happen to you congratulations that's why it never happens to you you know so uh, you, you could you, it's a you can bring anything you want in, into your reality you have to the what i'm th what i'm beginning to realize also is that a lot of people don't stick to it because what will happen is that we experience the echoes of a previously desired reality once we make that new change, like, okay, now I want this new thing. And then from there, it's not like it just suddenly changes. We, st we get these echoes of our previous realities that we kind of have to work through while the new one is, is taking shape, you know? Now, uh, what do you mean this, by that? Like, like let's, say, uh, let's say I want to create a 30,000 acre ranch, uh, but, but uh, before I do that, I have to kind of close out this uh, smaller ranch that I have now that I created as a uh, three years ago. Let's say I'm trying to create a bigger enterprise now here uh, in Texas, but I still have to go move cows on my the small ranch that I have here that was my step in that direction. So I'm going to have echoes of all of these previous creations that I that I wanted and that I, that I set in motion a long time ago, you know? So somewhere along the line, those things are still manifesting. Those things are still uh, materializing, coming into this physical reality. And then suddenly somewhere along the lines of like, Ooh, I want to pivot and I want to create something bigger. And then, but I'm still going to be getting the results of those previous materialization, those previous thoughts that have went out into the universe and that are becoming and, and, and manifesting now. And a lot of times those, those echoes are going to be in opposition to the new things we're trying to create. So it's, I've learned that it's just a matter of pushing through, holding that new vision very tightly, and then allowing those old echoes to kind of 
go down and down and down and down and down. And eventually they totally settle out and you're on your way to your, to your new thing. And then you're eventually going to get there. You're going to pivot. And then those echoes are going to, you know, basically get in the way of the new thing that you're trying to create. So there's, there's like a, there's like a, I quantified it actually when I started thinking back about my life. It's like a, there's like a six month echo period where you got to get through the previous creations while it's like the new recipe is, you know, being brewed. And then you start to slowly see that come in, into fruition as the old one kind of diminishes. And so it's, uh, so that's one of the things that's discouraging to a lot of people. They're like, I want to manifest my reality. And so they, they write down whatever they was and they have, they, you know, what is the first thing you see? The old shit you tried to create, you know, you don't see the new stuff right away. Uh, in most cases you can, and the better you get at it and the more firmly you believe that this is a real possibility, the more that it's going to actually happen faster for you, but you're definitely going to get the echoes, the leftovers of the, of the previous stuff. I'd be, I'd be super interested to see how your follower account changed from like 10 minutes ago to right now. <laughs> well, let me write down where we're at here so I could check that, check those analytics later. But yeah, that'll be interesting. Um, also not coincidentally, uh, probably a great time to take a pee break because I got to recycle some coffee. So nice. I'll be right back. Right on. I asked you, Brian, um, how has your social media game been going? Um, probably going better if I put a little more time into it. I just, yeah. sometimes it's just difficult for me to do social media. Like what do I post about the same things every day? It's like, right. I, I, and it, it's just me. Like it's, it's just all in my head. I'm sure I could be doing better at social media, have, you know, more followers. If I posted a lot more often, I just can't always think of shit to post, honestly, or things to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I feel you. Maybe, um, maybe I'm experiencing something similar. I'm just like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to post these videos anymore. Like I don't, I think I honestly, I think in truth, it's it's not that cool anymore because everybody is out there posting regenerative shit and it's become so watered down that it definitely doesn't have the same magic that it did, say, during the pandemic when there were a few of I mean, we've talked about this before, just sort of a few of us hardcore um, obsessives doing it. And then, you know, everybody got in on the game and I just, you know, I just. I'm just not that that excited about it anymore. Making the uh, making making videos in the same context. Maybe um, I, I like I like podcasts. I like doing these podcasts a lot more actually than um, than than making short form videos. That's for sure. Well, it, the short form video it it doesn't seem like it's quite as popular or as impactful as it was three years ago, right? You know, because three years ago, let's be fair, everybody was told to stay home. So what's everybody doing? They're looking at their phones 24-7. Oh, and here's this app that, that might get banned. Everybody better go check that out. Like, in 2020, if Trump had never said anything about banning TikTok, I probably never would have been on it. The <laughs> One of the only reasons I got on the stupid app, it's like, the government's going to ban it. Oh, the government's going to ban something. Maybe we should take a look at it because it might be kind of cool. And... You know, as it turns out, I met a lot of great connections and a lot of great connections met a lot of great people. 
And I think overall it's been a good thing. But what I'm saying is I think that that short video format, it still has its place, but now I think people are waiting for the next big thing. I mean, for a long time, it was Facebook. Whatever you did on Facebook, that was cool. You put stuff on Facebook and now Instagram's the thing. So everybody's posting on Instagram and building followings on Instagram. And now TikTok's the thing. Well, what's the next thing? We haven't found the next thing yet to bring in another group or unlock another group of creators and for all of us existing guys to go migrate to so we can try to find new audience there too. So maybe we're just kind of in like the bottom of, a, of an innovation cycle in social media. Or maybe we're just too fucking old and we've missed it and it's, it's out there. We just haven't, and it's, we just missed it so far. Well, one thing that actually occurs to me when you're, when you're talking about that is that it reaches this point with short form me, short form media where, where everybody is trying to prove that they have a more nuanced and subtle understanding of what is going on in a 60 second time frame. And so it becomes more and more like, and here's the, here's the example that, um, it, it goes to this is, you know, this is what it means to ranch. Oh, that, well, we have to do regenerative ranching. Oh, regenerative ranching is this. And then it reaches the inevitable one that I saw the other day that I knew was coming, which is there's no such thing as regenerative. Like, it's like this, this evolution of who has the more subtle, nuanced understanding, um, so that they can, you know, be the uh, the the guru, the uh, the arbiter of the of the of the esoteric subtle laws and keeper of the scrolls of 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 ranching. And you don't have to do that in a long form. You can just talk because your nuanced understanding of the world will come out in a long form. You don't have to prove in these short, pithy, uh, uh, caricature manipulated curated ways that you have some sort of uh lock on the universe and you have the new knowledge or or whatever which is something that inevitably we all try to do in that short form but once you're in long form you don't have to you can just say what you the way you see the world and there are so many words that obviously it's going to have very little hopefully overlap uh on the whole with with other people you know so I mean, I, that's one of the things that I that I kind of found was happening, particularly for me. It's just like, okay, I have to make a video about this, and I have to make it in a way that is different from all the other people out there. Which means that hopefully, I'm trying to engage with it on a deeper level or see some angle of it that nobody has seen. Otherwise, I'm just you know uh, making content that has already been made. So the effort is constantly to create something new. And so to create something new in a 60 second form is very difficult. Whereas you, the, the, the interplay between you and me is naturally going to produce something that's unique and that's different. And that's why I certainly like uh, these long form appearances much better than, uh, than making TikTok videos and Instagram videos. And, and the, the constant treadmill of being relevant and, um, uh, being top of mind. And as Gary V says, you know, day trading attention. Like to me, that's just like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like 
we've gotten to the point where we have to like we're have to out there elbowing to stay in front for you know for people's attention and and uh you know I'm glad I did it for that 3 4 year period and I still make videos sometimes but luckily I think that I've been able to create the legitimate professional connections that I don't have to you know rely completely on social media for credibility anymore and uh can uh have been able to make some some do some actual real world things that maybe I can ease back off the whole social media uh, thing and and allow myself to not feel like I constantly have to be being out there and and creating new things. Yeah, it's a pressure to create new things and or present it in a different way. Sometimes I'm just not really original, and I may not have an idea for a video until I see somebody else's, and they'll be like, "Yeah, I can do that too," and then think, "Well, it's just I'm just going to be basically ripping off what somebody else did." So I just don't make videos a lot. But now that was a that was a beautiful thing about the first three years probably of TikTok is, you know, quote unquote regenerative agriculture was so new and so fresh that nobody was making content about it. And it was just it was, you know, shooting fish in a barrel to create uh content that people hadn't seen before. But now it's mainstream. You know, yeah. it's mainstream and it just ends up now it just ends up arguing between two sub varieties of regenerative agriculture. Like it's like, you know, it's just, uh, uh, I, I find that it's, you know, and I made a video when I was in Australia. It's like, this is one of the only people that, you know, I've, that I've seen in Australia doing, you know, non-selective grazing. And they're like, people have been doing this since the seventies. Where did you go? You don't know what you're talking about. And it's just like, okay, here we are. Like, fighting amongst I, ourselves again. I have to sit here and de and defend my subjective experience of just a few days in Australia. That, yeah, this was the only place that I went to that 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 I saw that. It, yeah, I have to defend that to everybody on social media, and I mean, that's there's the a huge... reason why I don't want to post a lot of stuff anymore. Is I just get tired of explaining myself. Like, you will spend hours fighting with people in the comments that want to do nothing but troll you over a 60 second video. I right. have things to do with life. Right. I, I certainly don't. I, I, a couple of years ago, I stopped defending myself altogether. I mean, uh, I just, I don't respond to people in the, in the comments and, you know, unless it's something that I can do uh, that I can say productively. The, the problem for me is that if there, if there are a lot of comments uh, that are kind of off, that means that maybe I didn't do a good enough job explaining myself. I didn't uh, digest or truncate or uh, synthesize the message effectively enough, and it didn't it didn't come across. And there, or then you have to get into arguing about definitions. Like, well, you know, there are a lot of people out there doing rotational grazing. Are they doing non-selective grazing? No, but people don't know the difference uh, between the two. And I don't, you know, nobody nobody likes the guy who's just like, well, actually. Rotational grazing and non-selective grazing are not the same. You know, like nobody likes that guy and that doesn't do anybody, anybody any good. So ultimately, that's why that's why I think the only way forward personally for me is to just buy as much land, find a way to buy as much land as possible and just implement the strategies. You know, that's it. Like I'm I'm I don't want to be an educator. I don't want to be a guru. I don't want to be a. Uh, consultant forever. I like being a consultant right now. I, I, it's good if, if I have clients that actually that actually care. I I like consulting for companies 
more than I like consulting for individuals. Uh, it's, it's A, a lot more profitable, um, but, and B, they're typically not, they, they, people don't have their own preconceived notions of, of what, of what needs to happen. So there people are a lot more open. You know, it was when I was out on the ranches that people would get into debates with me. And I was just like, I didn't fly 7,000 miles to get in a debate with you guys. Okay. Here's the information. Take it if you want it. Leave it if you don't want it. Like, um, so, so I, I mean, ultimately I do, I, I do not want to be an educator. Education is not my passion. Okay. I'm, I'm definitely not hanging out with my kids is my passion. Like at, at this point in my life, hanging out my, with my wife and my kids and being as effective a land manager, uh, for as much land as I possibly can. And being so effective eventually that I phase myself out completely from all operations uh, so that I can just let younger people uh, go out and do the things that I've been doing and just send me a check every month. Like that would be, that's the ultimate goal. Like that's, that's, where, that's where we're shooting for. That's what we're aiming at. Phase myself out so I don't ever have to educate another person. So I don't ever have to move cows anytime I don't want to. You know, I don't have to process cows anytime I don't want to. Uh, that's the, you know, that's, that's really the, the ultimate goal. Like I, I, I feel like we've, we've had a, it's been a, it's been a strong fight over the last five years to try to, you know, push the, the industry forward on the social media side. And I, and I'm, I'm just kind of coming to terms with the fact that I don't really want to do that anymore. I'm just not that interested in, and um, uh, being the social media regenerative warrior that I have been over the last you know, three, four, five years. And that's fair. I just listening to you talk to your last few seconds, I was thinking of, uh, and I'm not going to name any names, but some of the larger corporate owned feedlots that have had social media presence over the last couple of years, they don't post a whole lot because they don't <laughs> have a whole lot to post about. They can't really show a whole lot of what goes on day to day at a feedlot without a whole bunch of people on social media asking uncomfortable questions. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't get a whole lot of feedlot. I think the algorithm knows that I'm, uh, I have to go look for it. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to paint a, a rosy picture. Things that are completely inharmonious with nature are difficult to depict, depict in a, in a positive way. The human, the human organism knows what beauty is. And there's nothing beautiful about a feedlot. There's nothing beautiful about it. There's nothing beautiful about animals that are designed to eat grass, standing in a dirt lot, being fed high energy feeds. There's nothing beautiful about it. The, the, human, the human organism knows beauty. It knows what the sublime looks like. And it knows that a, that a herd of cows out on grass is a beautiful and sublime thing. Um, and that, and it's very, very easy to make content about that compared to something unnatural, like a feedlot, very easy because it's, because it is in line and harmonious with our deep sense of truth and beauty and sublimeness. It's a good observation. I like it. I like it. So one of the things I wanted to, I kind of want to ask you about is what are producer, what do you think producers need to know and what sort of education delivery tools w would be effective at delivering that message? 
Oh, that's a good one. I think WhatsApp groups are really effective. I mean, I, I learned a lot from uh, Johan's WhatsApp group. Uh, that's, that's really good. Um, uh, obviously his book, um, I think the, I think the, the most effective way, um, to, to learn something and to get really good at something is to bug the shit out of people who are really good at it until they can't ignore you. And that's what I did with Jaime three or four years ago. You know, I, I just, I like, I got Johan's book. I saw his name in the back of it. I read some article or something online where he was, and I just started bugging the shit out of him. And I'm like, you yeah, know, you are not going to get rid of me, bro. Um, and so eventually, you know, we began to form a relationship. Um, I can't really say, I mean, I guess I've gotten a lot of feedback that's, that shows that my Instagram and my, my TikTok have, have been helpful to people and have been inspired people. I think that's certainly important. Um, but I think that there's, I think there's just such good information out there right now, particularly, um, with, but I'm, you know, I, I still haven't found a, a, a grazing, if you like, if you read how to win friends and influence people and then man cattle and veil, like everything you need to be a successful rancher is in those two books, in my opinion, like obviously make sure that you're applying all of the universal principles to your specific circumstances. Like that's something that you need to do no matter what industry you're in and no matter what's going on in your life. But to me, those two sources, I mean, Johan got kicked off of his land in Zimbabwe in the early 2000s. He needed something to do to pass the time. So he hand wrote this book and he hand drew all the diagrams and he collated the pictures that he himself had taken. And it's like this beautiful work that comes from this absolute hell of a period in his life where his, his beloved ranch and cattle were taken from him. And so he gave this this gift of absolute love to to the the ranching world in the form of that book, Band Cattle and Veld. And um, so you know, I think that, that I think that's I think that was sort of a divine offering to the community. And so I think that there will always be a really special place in the in the ranching uh, industry for that book, just because of the uh, the circumstances from which it came. So that one, and then How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, super important book. Uh, but I, I find a lot more value in reading books about people than reading books about cattle. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. That's a great book. Um, every problem is a people problem. Yeah, every problem is a people problem. Total, totally true. I mean. If you're out there with your cattle, you can observe and, and have improvements. Um, and there's, you know, there's infinite number of resources, how to, how to ranch better, but interacting with human beings is the, is the ultimate puzzle to solve. And, um, so I, that's the, uh, no matter, no matter what anybody ever asked me about ranching, I always try to turn it back to those, those people facing, uh, quandaries every problem is a people problem so what did you have to do to be able to leave for two weeks do you have somebody come watch the place move the cows what'd you do feed hay i just had to my neighbor and my dad fed hay while i was gone it was 
it was actually pretty cool because uh, they, I thought they were going to be the pasture they were in. I thought they'd have three or four days worth of forage. Um, and maybe they did only have three or four days worth of forage, but it took them about a week before apparently they started touching the hay. So, you know, they, they cleaned that pasture right down. I was very impressed with the harvest efficiency that they got in, in that pasture. Uh, they did lose some condition, you know, anytime you're not doing it yourself, you're going to, you know, your the results are not going to be exactly what you know you wanted but uh they're back on the upward track now and uh you know you just have to make sacrifices uh, my uh, my family's going to spain for two weeks in uh, january so we're gonna have to do that again your uh, wife your wife's from spain isn't she correct yeah she's uh she was born in the united states but her parents are from spain so we're going over there just uh, spend some time with her parents moved back because way more affordable over there Co- coffee's better too apparently so um which is another here here's another su- super interesting thing that I, that i think that you might find uh interesting like my wife and i have this conflict where she is all about the plaza culture and the walkable community and having a great neighborhood with lots of parks for the kids very european right very yeah. european sensibility you know Whereas I grew up, you know, surrounded by people who thought the highest and best use of time was to acquire land. Like, you know, this very pioneer, you know, uh, colonial mindset. Right. So I'm like, I'm always trying to move into the to the to the future in a way that will get us more land. You know, and she's always trying to move into the future in a way that will you know, allow a better quality of life for the family environment. And I realized that that stems from the fact, this is my theory, that, you know, for the last 500 years in Europe, unless you were born in the very, very upper echelon of society, there was 0% chance you were ever going to own a land. So you might as well have a really well-developed community, you know? And so the things that become important are hanging out at the plaza with your homies. You know, the third place culture, going to the bar, you know, having lots of fiestas, having a life that is a lot more geared toward enjoying yourself. Whereas most of us European bred Americans, like we had to go out and like bonker land and get land. And and so it's just imbued in our in our consciousness that we have to go out and and find a spread and acquire more land. And so this this tension between her sensibilities and my sensibilities have been brought into a new relief, uh, a, a new a new focus because I, I began to realize that that Europeans have a much much different sensibility about how to interact with reality. Okay, so cultural land use sensitivities. Yeah, well said. I just just trying to summarize what I just heard. So. You've got, you've got a foot, a foot in each world. Okay, a, a a wife of Spanish descent that wants that, you know, that more refined European. Like I'm thinking, row houses, trees, pedestrian streets, plazas, food carts, people, community, right, right. And you know, we have this American ideal. You know, we've been kind of talking about it a little bit about you know, we exert like the the exerting dominion over our lands and 
granted that was more of the pioneer thing and there's a lot of us now that are like oh, instead of trying to remake this how i think it ought to be which is a european trait we want to like maybe try to live in harmony with what's here and try to improve it and is that a thing of just being in an environment of a culture being in an environment for a long time do they gradually develop awareness of their environment and desire to live in it in more harmony uh the other thing you said that was interesting was how uh, the observation like the peasantry in europe like unless you were in the top one one and a half percent you were never going to own land but you still might be able to go out and steward land and work with livestock I, I'm, I'm sure that you know those kind of cases existed. But, and I can see the attraction of living, you know, in a small community with houses kind of close together, as long as there's some green space and a community centered on food. That, that's what I was really thinking about when you were talking is, is describing your wife's kind of ideal. It's like, man, that would be pretty cool to have a community like that. But then I get up, and I walk 10 minutes out of town to the field where my livestock are, and I get to move my livestock around with hot wire or whatever. And then I walk back to town because I have the rest of the day and I get to enjoy the rest of the day with my family. Do you, do you live is 10 minutes outside of town? Is that, what, is that what you're saying? Or is this is a hypothetical? Hypothetical. Oh yeah, then that would that would ultimately be you know a, a super cool goal, right? If you had if you had a, 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 a economically viable patch of land that, immediately there was close bordered to a community that had those uh those traits you know that would be certainly super cool but you know it's like uh, uh so it's 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 almost like it's it's kicked off this this sense of wrestling with who i am you know like uh going back to this idea of uh of the um the non uh calcified identity and so who are who are you and and um like well i mean i'm fifth generation rancher and but and then then you, you think of the thoreau line like i'll change it he says farms but i'll say ranches you know ranches are far more easily gotten than gotten rid of you know it's like you know, once you're once you're in it you know you're kind of stuck it's and it's to some degree i'll always like uh, like even if i even if we do end up getting some house in a walkable community somewhere uh, which would probably not be the United States because uh, we don't really have those that much. Um, I would always be just you know lusting for some land to steward, as you said, to some land to to because I mean because yeah, like we we want to live in we're 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 transitioning into this period where we want to live in more harmony with the environment. But since we live in this current system you got to buy it first or you got to lease it or control it in some way before you can then go live in harmony with it or establish your sense of harmony over the top of it you know so i'm just uh and, and so the only way really to uh, create some sort of balance with that is just, just like this hyper capitalistic sense of well you got to have a house in town and some land outside of town and then fly your airplane from one to the other you know <laughs> like that's there's one there's, there's one that uh there's one solution that a lot of ranchers have had for a long time you know uh the last the last hundred years um but you know people in the texas panhandle did that for you know for forever it's in uh all the pretty horses by cormac mccarthy and you know they uh 
let's be honest. What now? Let's be honest. If you could commute to work on your ranch in an airplane or helicopter, you'd do it. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, Absolutely. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying that um, it's uh, it's 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 just fascinating that that's the only way I can sort of come up with the ultimate uh, balancing of those two drives of those those two desires, you know, aside of from having a. Cause, I mean, because that's one of the interesting things, right? I mean, it's like imagine you have this real, real community. Uh, uh, let's say I don't know, a thousand, fifteen hundred people, and then you have a big chunk of land that's immediately bordering this community. Then, then you're the rich asshole, right? You know that that has that big piece of land that all of these other people who live in town don't have, and so it creates all of these, you know, interesting political thing. I mean, that's what's been happening since the the beginning of time. You know, so I guess just you know, just choose your choose your problem set, right? Well said. Well said. What do you, I need to get going? What do you want to end with, bud? Oh, I don't know, man. It's just uh, there's no ending with us. There's just a, until next time, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we could talk about what's going on in Ukraine and Israel and spacex oh i'm not touching israel dude i'm not touching that subject no 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 on, i thought you had a a degree in international relations or political science yeah i know enough about that to just know know that um, there's no opinion that you could have that would that would benefit anybody (laughs) in the short term or the long term i have nothing interesting or intelligent to say about that situation it's uh it's just it's horrible for both for for everybody involved I would probably tend to agree with you that that's the safest stance to take on the whole Israel Midi situation. Look, it's too complicated. There's things going back there three, four thousand years of history, conflicting claims, and you know, kind of like I've been I've been saying lately. You know, I ranch in Barber County, Kansas on stolen Comanche land and they stole it from somebody else. So do we just give it back to the people we stole it from or the people they stole it from or the people that those people stole it from who's right and who's wrong. And if we live in the past like that, we'll never move forward, I guess is what I would say. And it sounds easy to say it, but people got to learn how to get along on this planet and learn how to live on it together. Seems like a good idea to me. We're, 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 we're all, we're, I think that's what we're all trying to do, man. I think that's what we're all trying to do. Just uh, keep some keep some food on the table. Enjoy this uh, this hallucination until it's until it's over, and then um, hopefully not leave too big of a mess when we when we uh, check out. Good stuff. I think that's a great place to end. Hobbs, my man. I appreciate your brain. I appreciate your conversation. And you always make me think. Right on, Brian. Same here, man. Uh, Real pleasure, as usual. All right, gang. Have a great week.